0: Now we're heading over to Wanaka this hour with highlights from a panel discussion recorded at the recent 2021 Festival of Colours Aspiring Conversation series. It's a session I chaired exploring fake news with New Zealand journalists, News Hub's Paddy Gower and The Dominion Post's editor Anna Fifield. We're joined by expat Dr Mel Bunce, who wrote The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World. The expression fake news became a favourite of former American President Donald Trump, but of course the idea of people in power discrediting journalism has been around for much longer. As we chatted for more than an hour on the day, there has been some editing to fit the time we have available. We take you now to the Crystal Palace in Wanaka. Fake news, alternative facts, we live in a post-truth world. Fake news was Collins Dictionary's word of the year in 2017. But here's a quote from an American president. I won't say what year. There's been more new era propagated by the press in the last 10 years than in 100 years before. Now, it wasn't President Trump um, (laughs) who so liberally used the phrase. It was, in fact, John Adams, and the date he used was 1798. Wow. He scribbled it in the margins of a treatise, uh, predicted that free press would advance knowledge and create a more informed public. Fast forward, though, to 2021, and under-resourced newsrooms with their 24-7 deadlines can turn around things like media releases without adequate checks. Should we be, must we be, as the media, upholders of the truth in an era of um, proliferating alternative facts? Sometimes, though, we fail. And sometimes when you think about it, is it all on the media or do we have to have a sense of, of individual responsibility trying to wade your way through all this information? To discuss fake news honestly and openly, I'm joined by Anna Fifield, who's a Wellington editor for Stuff and the editor of the Dominion Post. We have welcomed her back from her time overseas as foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and the Financial Times, posting across Asia and the Middle East. Her book on North Korea, The Great Successor, The Secret Rise and Rule of Kim Jong-un, was published in 2019 Fabulous book. Paddy Gower, journalist for more than 20 years, began at the New Zealand Herald in Auckland before moving to the Parliamentary Press Gallery. He's now News Hub's national correspondent, covering and breaking nationally significant stories, like his series that blended the scientific and the personal on drug reform ahead of last year's election. It was a remarkable piece of work. So, welcome to you both.
1: thank you,
2: Lynn. thank you, Lynn.
0: We're going to look at the definition of fake news. Um, in a moment, but I thought I'd ask you, Paddy, Why did you become a journalist? If you take your mind back to when you decided this was what you wanted to do with your life, was it idealistic? Was it practical? What was it?
2: It was kind of practical. You know, I was at university and I um, suddenly had a BA and uh, was not ready uh, for the workforce and um, um, applied to be a journalist. Uh, I'd go to journalism school and I didn't have any journalism, so I went back and did an honours year and 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 did some work for the salient at Victoria. And I don't know at what point it shifted from being practical, but at some point uh, it just took over my life. The first stories, you know, I can remember all of them, doing them even as a student. Um, I remember a story I did for the Bays and Rimira times about a fight over some public toilets that went on the front page there. You know, from there, it just took over my life and became... Ultimately, the driving force in my life, you know, I still enjoy it as much then as I, I did doing those stories back in the day, and um, for me, it's just part of what I do. So there was never a great plan to end up here today, but it is, for me, um, my driving force to get to talk about it to an audience like this is a really proud moment for me.
0: Well, we welcome you here. Anna, <laughs> let me take you back. When you, when you decided that journalism was what you wanted to do, what was, the, was there a mm-hmm. moment? Yeah, there wasn't a moment, and it wasn't a decision. It was just oh, I was just
1: always a news junkie and wanted, um, thought it was the best job in the world to have a license to go around asking questions and to write and to think about it in that way. And I mean. I I was such a geek as a teenager. Like, I used to cover my school books with pictures of, like, Paul Holmes and Anita McNaught. Like, so (laughs) embarrassing. And as a teenager, I was, like, captivated watching Liam Diori and Cameron Bennett gallivanting around the Balkans and things. And I was like, that's amazing. They are getting paid to travel and to go to far-flung places and talk to people and, like, amazing. So I not only wanted to be a journalist, I really wanted to be a foreign correspondent, So... I also went to journalism school here in New Zealand, got my big break in Whakatane, the uh, branch office of the Rotorua Daily Post. Yeah, there we go. Whakatane in the house. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another. I got a lucky break and went to London uh, with on a fellowship, British Council Fellowship, for three months. Uh, it took me 20 years to get back, but I finally made it. But within that first year, I applied for the FT, to be the FT correspondent in Belgrade. And I knew I had no chance whatsoever but I studied so hard and I thought this is my chance to audition uh, and so I got on the radar and so two years later when the Australia correspondent went going on maternity leave they were like, oi, Kiwi, you're young and cheap and flexible, off you go and that was
0: my big break and I never looked back. If, if you cast your mind back over those those 20 years, Paddy, what have been the biggest changes that you've faced as a journalist, would you say?
2: Obviously um, when I first walked into my, my first job and... Um, I remember the New Zealand Herald rang up, which was, you know, sounds like a great opportunity as a first job, and asked me if I wanted to work there. And before they'd sort of told me everything, I was talking on Mum and Dad's landline, and, um, uh, you know, the old 067587276, they'd rang up on that. <laughs> and uh, I'd sort of said yes before they'd kind of given me the job, which was um, the first ever uh, night duty reporter from 6pm to 1.30am... Uh, starting on uh, starting on a Sunday night, which as a 22-year-old didn't leave you sort of much room for socialising during the week, but you could stay up all night on Friday and Saturday because your body clock was out. And, you know, my job was to clear the facts back in those days. You know, this isn't that long ago. And, um, you know, I would you know I, I would go over and clear the facts with, with press releases coming in. And I remember when, on my first night, they were sh- sort of showing me the sub-editors, and there just seemed to be so many of them, and they pretty much disappeared from newsrooms now. There seemed to be a hundred sort of sub-editors, and then there was this tiny little desk, Maltika desk over in the corner with one computer and it with quite a few cords out the back. And I said to the chief reporter, you know, what's, what's that guy doing? You know, he's not sitting with the subs or anything. What's this guy doing? And he was like, oh, that's the internet. Um, <laughs> we're not sure how it's going to work out, but he's, 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 loading, he's loading stories on there. And that was the beginning, really. And when I go and talk to um, students, you know, as I often do, I actually say to them, so much has happened since then for me. But honestly, for me, I don't feel like what I do has changed at all since then. You know, I would go out and someone would say, hey, there's a raid down the road. Immigration have gone in there and found some illegal plasterers. And I'd go down and get my notebook out and come running back and do a story on that. And that's really all I do now. Despite all of this technology and 10 years in Parliament, I haven't really changed the way that I work in that. I kind of just go and get the information however I can, usually through human means in some way, and then I make it into a story. And that, to me, shows the strength of journalism in that... To be honest, technology has not changed what I've done day to day um, in 22 years. My job feels exactly the same. I can't pinpoint anything, you know. I mean, we used to do courses on how to use Google. Um, I've, I've been on a co- course on how to use Google. It took a day. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, so I've, I've seen it all. But, you know, and I say to the say to the young journalists coming through, like, in the end, you know, look at what's going to happen to everything with you, but the actual role of a journalist won't change in terms of going out, connecting with people, getting information that is solid and bringing it back. That is actually something that's inside here and inside here for you. And that's 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 what it's been for me.
0: I can bet you on the facts. I'm so old. <laughs> we had Tallytex <laughs> and carbonised... Pages that went in typewriters.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Those were the <it. laughs>
0: Anna, what about you and, and your time in journalism? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what Patty says rings true
1: to me as well, and that the fundamentals of Doing journalism are exactly the same whether you are going to the Whakatande District Court or whether you're in the White House covering an American administration. It's all about gathering as much information factually as you can, trying to check it, having good contacts and people you're able to check things with, and just doing your best to tell the truth as, as well as you can and as fairly as you can. So, I mean, the internet obviously for our industry as a whole has been fantastic and devastating at the same time, and I, I think. Think of like social media, and I, th- I think about Twitter. Like I'm on Twitter nonstop, and it's like I can't l- live without it in my job. And if I, you know, when things happen, especially when as a foreign correspondent, I would always turn to Twitter first thing to find out, you know the magnitude of an earthquake or something like that. But also I hate being on Twitter non-stop. Like, it's just relentless. And I guess that's the relentlessness of our jobs now that it is a 24-7 news cycle. And we're expected to be on top of things and to be fast and to try to be first. And so with that comes... You break a lot of things, and along the way, you know, was it go fast and break things? It, um, it becomes more difficult to get things right first time, uh, and I think that's a really, really important thing. Uh, and maybe if you're rushing, like that's where errors get introduced and things. So I think that's. I mean, to look at the fake news side of things, a lot of this comes from speed. I think, and that you can put things right, but it's really, really important to get things right as often as you can first
0: time. I mean, it's almost a bewildering amount of information that comes Mm. our way as journalists, and we have to start trying to sort through Mm -hmm. what comes. And this is, I mean, I guess one of the changes in the last 20 to 40 years is the proliferation of fake news. And these propagators of it are getting cleverer. They know how to use the system. They know that journalists are under pressure. So, I mean, how aware do you and your journalists have to be of information of stories and pictures coming through that you have time to fact-check? Mm. the stuff that comes our way
2: fake news and uh, it's funny i've been thinking about it a lot before we came here and i covered donald trump's election in 2016 and been in parliament around the time that it was coming up and all of that sort of thing but you know i never saw it internationally i remember I, when i first saw something and i you know i thought this could be really really bad and it was in the sort of misinformation area, really, was actually right here um, in New Zealand when I was watching the 1080 debate. And I was kind of doing a story on it, and, and I started to just look at what they were doing on Facebook and what people were messaging me about through my public page and how they were talking to me. And this was long before the word fake news had even sort of come around. And I remember saying to someone, I was like, this 1080 thing and this, the way that people are using Facebook to convince each other on the anti-side of some things that are relatively, uh, you know, there's some valid arguments there, but these conspiracy theories and the way that they're reinforcing things to each other in this quite big community, it could be really dangerous. And what that sort of says to me is that fake news was not, we didn't copy it off. America or or anything like that, we actually had our own version developing, and it will develop anywhere where people can talk to each other without being challenged, and mainly on Facebook. So it was sort of no surprise to me that we started seeing it popping up everywhere. It's something that can operate really in the social media kind of world. And then you've got this um, next thing that you've touched on, which is busy newsrooms and changing things and people not being able to check stuff and they just started to collide and then as soon as they got into the political realm and places like America and whatnot they took off again and it's amazing to look at it can just start with people reinforcing themselves with pretty you know cooked ideas really on Facebook.
1: And one, I mean, one of the fundamental principles or co- missions of journalism, right, is to shine a light in dark places and to hold the powerful to account. And as you, uh, the point you made with that John Adams quote at the very beginning, that politicians for many hundreds of years have had issues with coverage, uh, journalist coverage and things. But the, with these two uh, words put together with really malicious intent by Donald Trump, I think he's managed to channel a lot. Of valid concerns, like with all propaganda, there's an element of truth in all of it. But in this, you know, there was an element of truth, there was misinformation coming from Russia during the elections and things. He's been able to channel all of that fear and concern about what was happening with Russia and with China and things into this little catchphrase which really, really worked for him. I mean, the reason that he kept saying it again and again on the campaign trail and talking about the press as the enemy of the people is that because it resonated with his base, they wanted to hate us and to believe it was true. And to watch what that's done and how that has dramatically increased the polarisation in the United States, um, not just in the media but across society as a whole, it feels pretty toxic now and many on many subject matters. But also I mean in my previous incarnation you know being out in the world and watching how dictators the world over had co-opted this phrase so like in places like Cambodia and things you would see uh, the leader and uh, across Africa as well saying fake news for anything they didn't like and so the way that this has taken hold is really really alarming to you know our business and because there are many many journalists out there who are trying to do their very best to tell the truth you know we don't do it for the money, that's for sure. We do it because it's a calling, right? And that this is, we see this as a role that we should be playing in a healthy democracy. And in fact, over the past couple of years, watching what happened with Brexit in the UK and the Trump era in the United States, I think we've really seen what happens when good journalism is compromised in a way, or where the society stops functioning properly. Um, Look at what's happened in the US. The democracy cannot be carried out properly, so the stakes are extremely high. So, yeah, I'm really concerned about the impact of that. And in some ways... I've been back in New Zealand for 6 months. I don't know what it was like before, but I have been surprised at the level of abuse that comes in through my email box. And sure I got loads of it in my previous job. I was either a communist lackey or, you know, something on a daily basis. But just the fact that New Zealanders default starting position is to be abusive and to just think that we're absolute rubbish at everything. Um, And that's, I mean, call me naive, but that has
0: been surprising that that is almost the entirety of the feedback I get. It's confusing, right, isn't it, for us in our profession because whenever the trustworthy occupations list comes out, Mm. we're right down there wallowing in the the bottom with politicians, Mm. you know. And yet in times of crisis like the ones we've gone through, what a surge of people coming back relying on journalists to to try and sift through and give good information yeah
2: yeah i mean what happened in new zealand in the last year because this this talk was um obviously scheduled for last year it has been quite extraordinary when you when you look at some of these some of these trends and you know we've had journalists that you know during the lockdown and the 1pm briefing and and that kind of thing you know journalists where people were able to watch what they're doing and asking questions you know they're was this theme and New Zealand was kind of in a on a war footing or what have you and people were emotional but journalists quizzing authority about what was actually happening some people were really quite critical of that and you know would abuse the journalists for doing that and I found that difficult you know including your own friends and and, and stuff like that were just like what's going on in there and I was like well they're doing their job and they're doing an awesome job from what I can see you know and but there was this criticism that started to build up for journalists for, you know, for what I saw as asking really valid questions. And at the same time, in some ways for the media in New Zealand, it was a watershed moment in that we were in quite a bit of financial trouble, but it gave people the opportunity to see how needed we were and how trusted we could be and how necessary we were. And so in some ways, COVID-19 came around at the perfect time for New Zealand media to remind people and show people what a role media could have in keeping things going. And if you look closely at what happens in those briefings and with the Director-General of Health and the Prime Minister, we have virtually a cycle of journalists and scientists raising problems around the border and around the response, the government effectively denying and downplaying it, and then eventually coming around to what these issues have been raised, and in the end, improving our response. And, you know, that man uh, sitting at the front there, Michael Baker, has been part of this constantly, and we've had that element as well that has strengthened the media and that our relationship with science, and Michael knows this because I've told him, and I'm I'm happy to say I didn't know what an epidemiologist was before COVID-19, but that Sort of thing has been the best thing for the media in New Zealand for people to see the way that we work, to see our value, to see, and for the media to actually do its job and improve the public response and get closer to get closer to science. I mean, that is one of going to be an enduring legacy of COVID nineteen in this country, and that it, we actually used media to our benefit when other countries around the world had had huge problems in the lead up to it. So New Zealand's looking, you know, people don't. Don't say it much as we talk about the response, but you know, I know I'm biased, but I think the media's come out of it great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Another thing we've seen in the last year, of course, is the rise of the conspiracy theorist, Anna, mm-hmm. and this is difficult to tackle because with social media, they are directed to sites where they will find only information. For those of like minds. Mm. Uh, and this is going to be a big, very big issue for us, of course, with vaccination. Is the media the main barrier between that kind of, of dangerous thinking and talking mm-hmm. and the public?
1: Well, just to briefly go back to what Patty said earlier, I think last year really showed that good journalism, fact based journalism, can make a kind of life-and-death difference in many situations, and that the role that we played in getting information out to people about the importance of wearing masks and yeah, reporting on things like what Michael Baker is saying and Susie Wiles telling us to make sure to dry our hands, not just to wash them, you know, this really does make a big difference, and when you look at what's happened in the US and people are questioning, oh, masks, social distancing, not necessary, and things, that's a life or death matter. A slower burn life or death matter is climate change and how we report on things like that and and the kind of previous position that you had to be balanced on an issue like climate change, which increasingly, you know, at Stuff, we don't give space to climate change deniers. We accept that as a fact now. But it's a big question now about how we deliver our message to people. And as some of you may know staff made a decision in the middle of last year to boycott Facebook as an experiment uh, because it was, uh, I was not I wasn't part of the company then, I wasn't involved in the decision, but as I understand it it was, you know, this protest against the role that Facebook is playing in our society partly because of the Christchurch massacre, but also the just the role in promoting and spreading misinformation, and I I mean, I absolutely agree with that in principle, but now I also see that the effect is to maybe create a vacuum and so that on Facebook what you have is the misinformation spreading and how do you spread the information or the true facts, not the alternative facts there. Um, so you could make an argument for why media outlets need to be on social media and, and counteracting the misinformation, but at the same time, I have no confidence in the algorithms serving up our news to the people who need to hear it. So the system has got a lot of problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got a pretty broad definition of fake news. You know, I I know that it was targeted at us, but I throw it out over all misinformation, which is, you know, why I brought up the 1080 example, which is where our misinformation or conspiracy theories are just allowed to thrive on Facebook. And... I'm working on a documentary at the moment on March the 15th that's going to come out uh, later this year. And obviously, everyone knows about Facebook and the, and the live stream. And we're looking pretty closely at some elements of what led the terrorist to do what he did. And YouTube has got a really, really big role in what happened in March 15. And it's it's public record that the Terrorist told the Royal Commission that um, it wasn't 4chan or Facebook or it wasn't the dark web and it wasn't Facebook that turned him into such a hateful individual. It was actually YouTube, and what it comes back to there is this sort of pseudo science that people can watch on on YouTube that doesn't cross over into hate speech, but basically cooks their brains over time with crazy ideas about race and that one is better than the other and immigration. And effectively, like I said, it's a pretty rudimentary description, but just cooks someone's brain to the extent that they can, you know, launch one of the worst terrorist attacks the world's ever seen. And that comes back again to the algorithms that YouTube is using. They are incredibly dangerous and... I've got no confidence just like Anna that these companies will truly modify their algorithms to put other stuff into people's feed rather than leading them down a rabbit hole. I mean, Jacinda Ardern is is trying with the Christchurch call, but it's a you know you can't enforce anything against these companies. They operate in a wild west and you know we know from what we saw with tobacco companies, we know what we're seeing with Coca-Cola and sugar and everything. These guys will do everything to try and pretend that they're doing stuff and they'll never do it. And in some ways, the real enemy when you come to talk about fake news is actually the algorithms in social media which are locked away and controlled by the companies, uh, in, in my view. So that's my entire documentary that I've laid
0: out, <laughs> <laughs> laid out for you Leave by it in by the by Dominion accident. Post on
2: Monday.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, want to, I want to come back to vaccination because I think it is going to be a good example of what we're talking yep, it's about. it's going to so, be a huge one, a massive. Yeah. And say for the Dominion Post, mm-hmm. how will you deal with that? I mean, you. Part of the dilemma is you can't just say to people you're wrong and we're right. So are you going to filter out what goes? And how how are you going to approach this issue of vaccination? I mean, I heard this morning on RNZ one in five now, yeah. one in five people are reluctant or flat out won't. Over the months to come, as it's being rolled out, mm-hmm. what role do you see the Dominion Post having?
1: Yeah, I think we have a really important role, like and obviously in you know, in tandem with other media agencies and with government agencies and things, just to try to report as much of the facts as possible in terms of, yes, the risks, but also the, you know, how tiny they are compared to everything else. And just to be as factual as possible, as many numbers as possible, I think, are good in this situation, holding the government to account over, you know, how it's rolling out the vaccination programme as part of it. But I think giving very... Like, we wouldn't give space... To anti-vaxxers, as you know, conspiracy theorists, they don't get any oxygen. You know, if it's based on uh, on yeah completely unfounded theories like that, so then you have free speech. You know, yeah, then you do have Isn't free it? speech. It's a it is a tricky balancing act, and maybe we might get it wrong sometimes. I hope that we would be you know, we would be held accountable ourselves and put it right as much as we can. Um, but I think getting that balance right, and to go back to the point about climate change, balance and fairness doesn't mean equal time and equal weight to things. And so I think that also applies with the anti-vaxxers. But I don't think it's stuff we've taken a position so much on this right now. We're still very much focused. But we are talking about what we can do to tell people more information about where they can get vaccinated and like news you can use that kind of stuff and to promote it as much as possible so
2: yeah I think there's interesting issues coming up with the vaccine and media media reportage Aotearoa New Zealand has made its own luck in a lot of ways with the pandemic and our response and you know looking at it the fact that we've got the fives of vaccine is another one of these little bits at this stage looking to be like one of these little bits of luck that New Zealand's had and that mm-hmm. the fives of vaccine is at the moment hasn't had any genuine problems whereas we we know that Johnson & Johnson now and AstraZeneca have so the question would be if they were in New Zealand and people were um, you know it's great to see that people in, in Vicargo Rest Home being vaccinated yesterday in the ODT today that is just awesome right mm-hmm. but what if it was the AstraZeneca vaccine? This that is what was Australia down there? That's right. And what, Or what if it was Johnson & Johnson? Because there are genuine questions about what they would be doing. So where would the media come in then? Of course, we're not going to come in uh, with an anti-vaxxer, but the media's role would be to question, what are we doing here? So you've got to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, essentially, and say, hey, we're all pro-vaccine here in this country mm. because the ordinary person who has questions about AstraZeneca, about Johnson & Johnson, potentially about Pfizer, because there are, you know, people are saying one in five, and I mean, I'm talking to people, they're not massively vaccine hesitant, but, you know, I'm talking to, you know, normal people who are saying, I want to wait. There are a lot of people now saying, I would just like to wait as long as I can before I have it. And when you see AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson getting pulled, I mean, that adds to that kind of issue for people
0: realistically always a risk when things are rushed. Look, I'd like to invite um, onto the floor uh, Dr Mel Bunce, The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World. We're lucky to have Mel. She's just out of quarantine, having come from the UK, and she was a speaker with us this morning. Welcome, Mel.
3: Thank you. And I've also had the AstraZeneca... Uh, vaccine, right. um, I come to you at a
0: high-risk group. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mal, I know you've been, you've been listening to this conversation. This is, you know, the, the world in which you live also. Since you wrote The Broken Estate, I mean, it's really only a couple of years ago, but, but how have things... And it, let's look at fake news. Mm-hmm. How has the scene changed? Because I think you were writing in here saying, oh, New Zealand, you know, you, you're pretty lucky, really. It's not such a big issue here at the time, but it feels like everything's changed in, in a very short space of time.
3: Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I was saying this morning that I'm a lot more positive about some of the uh, changes I've seen in the news media in New Zealand over the last couple of years, and that's actually really directly relevant, kind of building on what Paddy and Anna are saying, because you need to have these forms of trusted news so that people come to them rather than kind of pick up on what their friends are saying on social media. Um, And local news in particular and community news is extremely important because when that starts to disappear, and this is what we see in the US... People move towards getting their news from cable news or national publications that tend to be a lot more political and partisan, and they tend to take, um, you know, especially cable news in the US, they tend to be really, you know, left-wing or right-wing and therefore quite easy to dismiss if you don't agree with them, Um, whereas local news is often like that kind of trusted community um, source of information. And uh, there's been some really positive changes in terms, I, I think, in terms of stuff moving into local ownership and the government saying that it's looking to do considerably more funding for local journalism. So I think those are the best possible immune systems, you know, we can think of it in that way, against disinformation and misinformation.
0: And are you finding a tidal wave, if you like, of fake news coming from social media, from spin doctors? Is this increasing? Is this overwhelming, perhaps, journalists in newsrooms that are, that are struggling?
3: Yeah, definitely public relations has been a key issue for years and years now, it's You guys know all too well that um, oftentimes the public relations teams are more resourced and more senior than the journalists that they're trying to influence. And oftentimes, you know, in the UK we talk about um, a a kind of increase in journalism, which is these journalists under pressure are really just taking press releases, making tiny changes to them and republishing them, or maybe just taking, you know, some posts off Twitter and packaging them and here's a news story. Because they're trying to produce 10 stories a day under huge pressure. So they're not doing the same critical appraisal, fact-checking, the human element of the journalism that Patty was talking about. That's what's really under pressure, and that's kind of making the, the relationship a bit um, unbalanced, I'd say.
0: Mm-hmm. you finding, Anna, that, that PR is getting more sophisticated or more prevalent?
3: Yeah, I mean,
1: it's really shocking, the number of... The, the size of the communication staffs and all these you know, companies and ministries as well and things, and especially it's a really a big problem I face in Wellington that we have great young journalists coming through and being really good at their jobs and they get poached by government departments for much higher salaries and much friendlier hours so it's a struggle to retain really good talent in that kind of environment which is a terrible situation to be in and a challenge to me. How do I try to retain staff in that environment, and especially in this housing market as well? That's another unwanted complication. But, yeah, that is something I'm really concerned about. And one of the very first things I did, like in my first week at staff, is I told my reporters in my newsroom I wanted one story a day from each of them. And if they needed a second day... Absolutely, that's fine, because they were coming in and saying, I'm gonna write these three stories or these four stories today and I was like, That's crazy. Like this, that's how you get the journalism. They will rewrite it, like do the bare minimum to make a story. This is the example of my newsroom, but this is the wider ecosystem. I'm not picking on my journalists, you know, but there's there's this pressure uh, on them to pump out lots of copy. So just by saying to them, just do one story and do a great job of it, you know, much more satisfying to them as a professional. much more satisfying for the reader to read it and I think, yeah, everybody's better served. That's what I say, of course, that I want just one story a day but sometimes news does intervene and, you know, we'll have to race on breaking news in particular but I think we could have less news betting news in New Zealand.
2: Um, You know, I was a crime reporter and, um, you know, we had to do... We were young journalists and we had to do, you know, what was called... People actually don't have to do them very often anymore death knocks, um, where someone would die and and you had to go out and talk to the family and, you know, we would actually literally get photos off their mantelpiece and take them back to the paper. And that skill set has gone because if someone dies tragically now, people just go and jump on Facebook and grab it and the photo's out there. And that is probably one of the great losses um, in this journalism is actually some of the humanity of journalism is gone because, believe you me, when you go out to a family and knock on their door and someone's been lost in a tragic accident and they give you a photo off the mantelpiece and you drive it back into the Herald and someone takes a photo of it and you drive it back and give it back to them, you know, you're going to make damn sure that what you write and what you do is correct. When someone dies and you jump on and take all their photos and all their privacy off Facebook or Instagram, that's actually not journalism, Right. And that is part of journalism. And in that, that is where some of the humanity of journalism goes, where some of the skill of journalism goes, and some of the accuracy of journalism goes. So I sort of came out of that environment and then sort of ended up in Parliament by accident, which, you know, I did 10 years hard, hard time in there. All I really remember of it it was just a constant battle and no one would ever tell you the full truth even when you were sort of working with someone on something there was always a trick everyone had a trick up their sleeve including yours truly and I just sort of felt that you know you had to have journalistic eyes in the back of your back of your head and for a lot of the time I convinced myself that I was fighting the good fight on behalf of the public and holding these guys to account but the honest truth is, you know, for a little while I didn't really have a plan while I was in there or a, or a, or a structure to what I was doing. And sometimes I look back on it, uh, increasingly I kind of look back on it as, you know, not the best part of my career for me personally. Um, you know, when I kind of just got locked into too much gaming of and in, in, in playing games and different things. So, you know, as we were saying before we came on, you know, I've just had a, a new lease of life in my career coming out and working with people and I've really enjoyed working with science and and putting science into mainstream, full-on populist journalism and things like that and it's just been a lot more refreshing. Um, so that just even when you mentioned spin doctors before, um, basically I got PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> triggering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, triggering.
0: Mel, you make great points in your book, and one of them I wanted to come back to you on, I raised this before, is people's responsibility. So as journalists, we, we do our best to cut through the fake news and the rubbish and and, and source good information. But what about... I mean, do you feel there's a a responsibility on people also? They can't just be passive. They need to also be be active.
3: Well, I'd like them to be. Um, I'm not sure... As people that want to create a nice public sphere, I think there are things, there are kind of guidelines that we can follow that will improve our kind of democratic conversations and the communities we live in. Um, And I think one of the key things to do is to check information before you share it because there are all these cognitive biases that we have as humans, including the fact that our friends and families will trust what we say a little bit more than they will a stranger. And they shouldn't always do that, to be honest. You know, know, who hasn't gotten heated in an argument and just thrown some arguments out there? So I think, you know, checking information before you share it Checking, you know, did I have a strong response to what I just read that felt a bit emotional and then thinking, OK, well, is there, is there maybe a reason for that? Um, and putting things in context. So we were talking before about what, how to handle stories about the different vaccines, some of which have risks. AstraZeneca has a risk, of blood clots, but it's a 1,000 times more likely that the contraceptive pill will give you blood clots than the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, that's an astonishing piece of context that changes how a lot of us, especially women, um, but men too, might think about the risks associated with that. And so I think thinking about the context, not just sharing pieces of information without that wider... Yeah, we can all do our bit to contribute, definitely. And there's an interesting development. Is it Twitter or Facebook? I think it's Twitter now um, asks you... Yes, yeah, Twitter. Um, when you share a story that you haven't read, it says, yeah. are you, you know, are you, sh- are you sure you want to share that story because you literally haven't read it? I think that's a very healthy reminder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just to be prompted. Don't just, you know, you saw the headline, you want to pass it on. Why don't you read it first?
2: Yeah. I mean, they need a clickbait warning like that as well, don't yeah. they? Yeah. You know, I remember when clickbait was first coming in and people... Would always complain about clickbait, and you know and then I was like, well why why are you clicking on it <laughs> yeah and then I kind of got to why do I click on it because I, like, I don't i don 't like it either, and you know that 's been one of the one of the frustrating things is you know we could actually stop clickbait by not clicking on it, but for some reason, um, including the you know some of the journalistic trickery but also our own weakness, we do look at it and pretend not to. And I always remember my dad, who used to pretend that he didn't watch Shortland Street, but, you know, to co- occasionally catch him at the side, kind of asking questions about what was going on, and that was the sort of, the, that's the weakness that leads to, to clickbait, the fact that we kind of deny that we actually do click on it sometimes. Yeah. That's where that human frailty comes in around all of this sort of stuff. So we've got a role to play, but it's just really hard sometimes.
0: Mel, I wonder, when you were in the UK and the whole Brexit debate, which has mm. kind of been swamped but is yeah. still an issue, I mean, did you see a proliferation of fake news over yeah. that time you did? Yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. And I, I would say I'm a bit careful using the
3: word fake news, which sounds like a boring semantic thing, but we, do, we talk about this all the, all the time in my journalism school in London. I, do work, I share Anna's concerns that fake news is used by kind of political authoritarian people around the world to discredit journalists. So we zoom in and focus a lot about disinformation and misinformation and disinformation when you're actually trying to deceive someone and misinformation when it might just have been a mistake that you kind of shared that and we saw so much of both of those in the brexit debates huge amounts you know people cherry picking information about um, oh you won't be allowed to import bananas anymore or you know we'll we'll send all this money to the you know it'll improve our health system and the NHS or on both and on both sides to be honest like I, I'm a pro-European, but there were, you know, coming from the other direction, there were people saying, oh, you'd never be able to negotiate a, f- a free trade agreement of any kind, which actually they have s- somewhat almost done. But, but Anyway, yeah, there were, it, was, it was the most polarised media debate or political debate environment I've ever been in, and more frustrating in some ways than just what was happening in the US, which was also polarised, because there were so many technical things. There were actual factual pieces of information about courts and the laws and the trade and everything, and they would often be getting that just factually incorrect, and it was very frustrating.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was in the US for the election there last year. If you really look at what Donald Trump was doing and how he was using fake news and the clear plan that was underway there for him to undermine the media to introduce very early on this concept that the election would be stolen and that there would be vote-counting issues in those particular states where there would be that slow counting of the Republican votes going up on the first day and then the Democratic votes coming in, which actually everybody knew. Introducing that sort of theme and basically building towards election night where it would look like exactly what he had said had happened, which it did, and then to... Basically, discredit all of the media and the whole process. It's very clear that it was actually a plan for him to, and to eventually end with some sort of, if he did lose, some sort of discord um, and a platform to run again. You know, it's very clear that that Trump had a plan that he had enacted for years, and definitely was factoring in in the months and weeks leading up to kind of create almost exactly what almost exactly what happened, and. You know, I, I hope that this is the nadir of fake news. What we saw there, because he nearly pulled it off, and that in the end could have been disastrous for the world.
0: We promised you time for questions. We have a roving microphone, so a little bit of patience involved. But who's got questions for our panel? Put your hands up.
4: Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine seems to be in a bit of a topic de jour today. How do you, as journalists, once that headline goes out, and we know that people grab the news and bites these days, AstraZeneca Blood Clots Association. I've had conversation at work with some of my staff this week. That's a bad vaccine, can't have it, aren't we lucky? I watched Dr Anthony Fauci last night on CNN. He said, you know, they've got 60 people out of 60 million who've been vaccinated. That's one in a million. And he said it's not actually that they're stopping it. It's just a pause at the moment. But that information, how do we get that information? Because in this country, if we do have to introduce the Astra- AstraZeneca vaccine, what happens? We're already behind the cue ball in the fact that so many people right now think it's the bad vaccine. How do you guys get the right message
2: across? I mean, that's exactly what I was saying, saying earlier, that at the moment we are lucky that we are going down the fives uh, route because people like you say, see a headline, have a question or become hesitant. And I think you've actually struck on something that could potentially become quite a big challenge here in New Zealand for media and science communication Um, if this Pfizer rollout can't happen fast enough and we do need to, as you say, bring in AstraZeneca or J&J. And it's going to be about context and, you know, Anna was talking earlier on about public interest information effectively and scientific communication again to change the way that your staff are thinking and give them the context that we've we've heard from from you as well. A few months ago, I would have said to you, anti-vax, people in New Zealand don't listen to them, that guy at the last election, whatever his name was, just floundered, there's just so few of them, they've always been there, whether it was 1080 or something, they're a very small group of people but I reckon you're really onto something that in recent days, literally, people are becoming more and more hesitant in New Zealand and Australia because of these headlines. And you're just going to have to check in, with, check in that that we start to do our job and give that context like what you and you have given.
3: There, I think there is some good news that's coming out, of. if you're going to learn from the UK experience, that as the rollout happens... Um, hesitancy has gone down. So some research just came out um, a week or so ago showing that, you know, similar to the RNZ thing this morning that said about one in five were hesitant. We had similar numbers last November, December, when vaccine first kind of was on the horizon, and has gone down dramatically now. And the people that said they were hesitant, are, are very few of them are hesitant now. But we're, that's in the wider context where we are affected every single day by COVID, and it's really affecting our lives. So you probably have
0: a harder... A harder sell in New Zealand, perhaps. It might be an issue too of the other vaccines, the ones that we send to the islands. You know, what I mean, because we're taking responsibility. Yeah. For that, so it all gets quite tricky, doesn't it? Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah, it gets really, it gets really tricky. There's
0: another question. Was there a question over here? Yep.
2: Um,
5: I'm going to take it back to the questions around the algorithm and clickbait, etc. Um, and I see those as being more of a symptom of a larger problem, as opposed to be the problem themselves. The issue that media faces is that your ability to get in front of people's eyeballs is controlled by these big you know, tech companies, um, would it not make a lot more sense for the media to be campaigning or lobbying to actually see more regulation around that so that we are not seeing what we see due to commercial interests? Essentially, those algorithms are created by people, and the idea behind them is to make the most money as opposed to uh, having the social or community good as the primary driver of how those algorithms operate. So until we see a change where those algorithms are not driven by a uh, commercial you know, shareholder return type of arrangement, we're not going to see a change in how they operate at all until that changes because at the moment they operate to make the most money and not showing true news and showing misinformation and disinformation makes the most money at the moment. So how do you see the media playing a role in changing that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if we look at the case of Australia, it's fascinating to watch what has happened there. I mean, that's a little different from what you're describing, but how the Australian government did stand up to Facebook and Google and hold them to account for the way they've gutted our industry and, and sucked away our ability to report on these kinds of things. And Facebook and Google, I mean especially Facebook sure did take notice. Or I mean, Google saw the writing on the wall, right? And but Facebook took a little longer. Um, but I think standing up to them and holding them to account and if you want to operate in our democracy, you have to participate responsibly in it would be a great thing. I hope that our government is making plans to do exactly the same thing right now. And I mean I would think it would be great if we could campaign for something like that, but obviously we have an interest in it. So we have to be very careful about how, that we don't seem to be self-serving or biased in some way that we're doing it for the greater good.
2: Jacinda Ardern in the Christchurch Call, so she spoke this week um, about the algorithm. The problem with what, what you're talking about is these tech companies are not going to submit themselves to regulation ever. The whole internet is not based on that. There's no international law that can get to them. Um, and what you're seeing with the Christchurch call is a sort of a agreement where they're saying, we'll work on our algorithm, so if someone gets shown something, we'll flick up something that's a counter view or what have you. You know, this is just a classic kind of corporate response that whenever they're in trouble, they worried about regulation, they introduce their own thing and say it's been sorted out. We've seen that so many times. And I'm with you, and... It hasn't been picked up on as much um, by people in New Zealand that actually Jacinda Ardern is really taking the lead in the world here and at least getting these guys to the table and doing something. But the chances of them ever giving up their algorithm, uh, which is at the heart of what of of how everything works, and everyone in here who's got kids or grandkids and sees them in front of YouTube and sees the stuff that they watch or, you know, you find yourself doing it and how did I end up watching this ship sinking Um, and, you know, whatever it is, you know, it should be worried by the algorithms. But, yeah, uh, the answer of whether they'll be regulated or not is I wish you could Google it.
3: Yeah, my question is, love the comments about the importance of local funded journalism. I think we have really good journalism around here. Question for Patty, though. At the national level, I'd be really interested on your views on publicly funded journalism, especially with the proposed TVNZ-RNZ merger. And I just wondered what you think the media industry's response to that will be if it results in a reduction of market share for privately owned journalist companies?
2: Yep, OK. So, yeah, I mean, I do um, publicly funded journalism. Um, my documentaries are funded by New Zealand On Air, wouldn't happen without that money it's that simple no one would pay you know the money that's required to do them they wouldn't happen um so that's one of the great things about publicly funded journalism is that we do get to do stuff so a huge supporter of that at a national level through new zealand on air in terms of the tvnz rnz merger on one level It's great that media has sort of strengthened in New Zealand over the last year or so and and the government taking an active interest in public media, whether you agree with the the merger or not, you know, in in my view, is a good thing because they are interested in in what's happening out there and the structure of the market. I think the last part of your question, and and forgive me if I got it wrong, is would commercial players like TV3 or, or what have you be worried if TVNZ with the help of the government took more of our market share. That's um, really something that you'd have to ask a chief executive or something because it's quite <laughs> quite complicated. <laughs> but yeah, at the moment, TVNZ is backed by the government and we, um, up until recently, um, when we're now backed by a massive international conglomerate. We're backed by pretty much nothing. And um, <laughs> um, it will be a problem if you have a publicly funded competitor that's taking advertising not just off TV3, but off stuff and stuff like that and kind of has an unlevel playing field. But let's see what they come up with. We've
0: got time for, for one more question. So one, one more question, fake news related. Hi. I know a lot of young people tend to only get their um, news from social media, which, as we know, can spread misinformation and disinformation. Do any of you see a future where more traditional media sources... Uh, try to cater to young people, and draw them in to provide them with uh, more factual information. Anna?
1: Great question. So I was at the Washington Post until September last year, and one of the big innovations was that they had a person there in the newsroom whose entire job was making TikTok videos mm-hmm. on the Washington Post account, and they were hilarious and things. But there was not much news content in them, but it was a way to draw younger people in and engage them and meet them where they are, where they were. I don't have the analytics around that, but I think it was a great way to to try to reach people. But now the number one source of audience engagement and um, bringing new readers, yeah, consumers of news into the Washington Post is Instagram. So they are putting a lot of effort into that. You can see it with the New York Times, the Guardian as well. So yes, I think that old dinosaur media is trying to innovate and things, but the problem is, yeah, getting to people and getting the people to read the stories, to click through from the Instagram page, I guess. And so, I mean, one of the things I always ask students uh, when I go talk to them is where do you get your news from? And if I'm lucky, it's kind of vice or something like that, but usually the daily show or the satirical programs uh, and things like that, or, or YouTube, is an often a, a common answer as well, so it's a big challenge to us. And at the like, when I look at the Dominion Post, when I say I want to try to attract younger readers, I mean mid-thirties would be great. <laughs> I'm not talking very young.
0: <laughs> is this just to wrap this up, Mel? Is this something that you're looking at? at your school, you know, yeah, engagement yeah, of just, younger... Uh, that's exactly what it made me think of, like, our, the number
3: one graduate destination, just about, for some of our students, is going to legacy organisations but working on their social and trying to increase engagement. Um, and there's also, I think, that one of the positive notes I like to think about sometimes is that there's research showing that young people are actually more used to paying for news and content online than older demographics because they're used to having Spotify subscriptions and Netflix and things like this, so... People are hopeful that a kind of Gen Z, who are kind of native uh, internet population, might actually be willing to pay for high-quality news brands in the future. That's the hope, anyway.
0: Now, if you would join me, please, in thanking our candid, fascinating guest today, Mel Barnes, Anna Field and Patty Gower. Anna, Paddy and Mel talking to me about fake news at an aspiring conversation session at the Festival of Colour in Wanaka last month. Thanks to all of them for agreeing to let us broadcast the session and to Philip Tremure and the outgrowing director of the festival.